what kind of preparation did you have to go um, through before going out and doing your thing? Um, we went through basic training, and that's just a medical, uh, mental and uh, physical training to get you prepared for the military. It's a way of transforming you from the civilian life into the military life. Um, not a uh, exercises like you said, but a lot of mental stuff. Where they were, when I was in, they were allowed to uh, get in your face and do whatever they wanted to do. Or and if you didn't, if you still didn't change, they could take you out back behind the shed and yeah, make you change. <laughs> That's what I want to say. <laughs> so and, that, uh, meant, that meant actually putting hands on you, being physical. Yeah. Yeah. The train the most of the uh, non-coms that I had that trained me in basic were all Vietnam vets, so they had been in the Vietnam War, so they knew what war was all about. So they knew what they 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 knew what they needed to get you trained up to be like to be prepared mentally and physically physically to you know survive. Well, uh, yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. I kind of wonder would I, would I if if I had a went into the service would I have enjoyed it? Cause you know I like to you know blow up stuff and, and toys and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of hate. I kind of hate now that I didn't go. You know, in, in hindsight, because when. I, I did sign up for the draft, you know, that was like the beginning of the Vietnam situation. But mm-hmm. uh, when I was filling out my little paperwork, you know, I had hoop and cough, gangrene, every other thing else I could think of to keep from going because I was, you know, submerged in my music, and that's what I really wanted to do. And um, I, I yeah. couldn't see myself. I couldn't see myself going, but I really hate it now <laughs> because I, I always wanted to fly planes, and I figured if I would have went in to the service, I, did, I would have got my training there. Go ahead, I'm sorry. They, I did about everything in there from driving tanks to to going to live fires, blowing stuff up, everything. We, we were cross-trained with the – in Korea, I got cross-trained. The units were – had in the people embedded from special forces and uh, the rangers and stuff when we got there that taught you different methods of how to do your missions. Hmm. So it was pretty exciting. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Uh, the different branches of, of the service, I mean, do, do do they all go through the same type of training or different types of training? Uh, different. They're different. Uh, like in the infantry, which was I was in, uh, you had your basic infantry soldiers. Then the next step up would have been a, a a ranger, okay, and then you would have had special forces. And in between those tiers, you could have went airborne, you know, uh, and 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 did the then the rest of the other tiers that would have been airborne special forces or airborne rangers. It was it was. Um, I had scheduled myself when I first came in to go airborne and then the ranger school, but Korea stepped in and they they wanted me now when I when I when I graduated from my advanced training, they they wanted me to come now. So there I was going. Air, airborne sound like you jumped out of an airplane to see if the parachute worked. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> You know, when they line up in the planes, when they line up in the planes like that, the airborne guys, they line up real close to each other. I mean, you're 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 real close to each other, okay? And when the when the jump master says go, you don't have an an option to step out of line, be out of the line, or hold up the line. It's just like a can of, of peas being pushed out of the can. Just they just all you just get pushed out all the way to the last guy. <laughs> so so you, you you can't change your mind and say no, I don't want to go. No, you can't change your mind. You're going regardless if you want to go or not. 
<laughs> yeah, that's pretty interesting. That's interesting. Well, well, Mark, I want to ask you uh, uh, what type of patrols did you pull in the DMZ, but I first want you to explain to our listeners exactly what the DMZ is. I know it stands for the Militarized Zone, but, but what is that exactly? Yeah, the, it stands for the Demilitarized Zone. But in South Korea, it's 151 miles long and about four meters wide, okay? And that four meters is split into two, uh, four meters, two, two kilometers I'm talking about, four kilometers wide. And uh, those, two kilo- those four kilometers are split into two by two, okay? So there's a, there's a U.S. sector and a rock army sector, uh, South Korean sector. And then the North Koreans have the other side of it. There's no fence line. It's just uh, some signs that mark uh, the demarcation line, okay? And demarcation line means, you know, if you step over that line, you're in North Korea and you could be shot. So you have to know the terrain and you have to know the area really good, okay? Or know your map, your map reading skills have to be really sharp to know where you're at on the map so that you don't get uh, disorientated, you know, while you're inside the DMZ. So basically that's uh, DMZ stands for a boundary that you have to stay within because once you step outside of that, you fair game. That's it. It's a boundary. It's a a no man's boundary, okay? Uh, uh, Anything can happen inside there, okay? Whatever you want to imagine that could take place in the military could happen inside the demilitarized zone. Uh, they don't allow tanks or heavy weapons inside the the DMZ, but would they will they do let you patrol? Okay, inside. Although technically, by the armistice, we're not supposed to patrol the DMZ, but we did. So, what type of patrols jump off in there? Uh, you have a day in the in the during the daytime. You have day recon. The recon, you go out and you recon the area for your night ambushes, which take place in the night. There, you re, your patrols run. They're 24 hours long. Uh, used to be at a one time they were three days long, but they gave it up for 24 hours, and you do your day recon and your night ambush in one day. So with that 24 hours, I mean, are you basically up all the time or you you, you rest during that time? That uh, yeah, we went in, we went into, we had two guard posts inside the demilitarized zone, guard post Collier and guard post Solette. My patrols that I ran, we always went up into guard post Olet. We'd get done, the, the day we come would start like at 10 or 10.30, and you had to 4 o'clock or 4.30 to go into guard post select. And then you had downtime till about 10.30 at night, 11, 11 o'clock at night, to do your night, start your night ambush. And then your night ambush would end 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. And you had two, two night ambushes that you did, two different locations. And... Uh, you would set up the patrol and the ambushes, and you would basically you were doing a, a a recon at night, but you were setting up an ambush because you were moving around. You weren't you weren't static. You weren't you just didn't go into one ambush and stay there all night. You you had to move to another ambush site. Question for you, Mark, is when I think about mm-hmm. ambush, it's almost like I mean. I don't know if this is the same, but when I think about ambush, it's like I'm laying in waiting for somebody to come through where I could pounce on them. Is this the same type of ambush, or is it different? That's the same thing that we did, except for we had snipers in the in our patrol, and uh, we had another set of, of uh, optics that we used inside the uh, patrol to scan the area. And if you saw a unidentified person out there 
and it looks like he was coming towards the patrol. When he got within a certain distance of patrol, I'm, I'm thinking 100 meters, maybe even 50 meters. And then you, you had to request permission to fire from the demil from the DMZ top. Okay, and it had that was at best. It had, to do that to fire on that on an unidentified personnel. Uh, you had to request permission to fire from three different uh, ups. I want to say ups, okay? You had a DMZ talk, a brigade talk, and then division. They had to all agree, or actually brigade would give you the permission to fire, okay? Okay, but they would have to notify division that you were firing on, on unidentified personnel. And... By the time that happened, if you were in a firefight, it was over. A firefight maybe lasts like 15 seconds, 20 seconds, but if you're in that firefight, it lasts forever. Uh, what I used to do is with my guys, if we were taking hostile fire from, from the North Koreans, and they were taking pot shots at us, I... I I didn't go through all that red tape. I, it was danger close to me, and I, I didn't want my guys to get hurt. So we just I just had my snipers and everybody else firing. And I i bit the bullet on that. And the next morning when they came out and inspect, I got my ass chewed and whatever. But I wasn't going to let my guys, you know, get, take a chance of getting shot or die or out there in the DMZ. Which makes sense. So, question again, uh, does the ambush come first, or do you guys have to see perpetrators of movement before you set it up? Sound like you set up the ambush before you even really know where you're setting it up at, or do you know that prior to setting it up? It's the day recon. You go out and you you relocate. You do, you do uh, some checkpoints, and then you go to your ambush site, the first ambush and the second ambush. The second ambush first, and then the first ambush, okay? And then your RP or release, you release into the guard post, and then you come out and do your ambush. And what what you what you just said is right. You you go into the ambush and you lay wait to see if anybody's gonna any kind of movement or somebody's trying to infiltrate across the border. Okay. Um, if they try to do that or attempt to do that, then then you have to go through that whole rigmarole of we're asking for permission to fire. If he doesn't shoot on you, you have to go through that, okay? But they carry grenades, so you always can get away with it while they were, they were throwing grenades at us or something, you know, and, and you can return, you know, shoot at that individual. You're not allowed to shoot towards the north. You're not allowed to point your weapon towards the north, which I, I don't understand the whole thing about that, but I pointed, I laid my ambushes in, and we were pointed north, okay? Yes, that's interesting as well, because if you're not allowed to point your weapons north, who's to say that they won't attack from the north? That, that's, that was a theory of me. I said, and during the daytime, during the day recon, I tried to stay in high, you know, in high positions when we walked, like on the other side of the the mountain or the other side of the little hills that are in there, okay? So they couldn't see us. So it was cool to point our weapons that way, that towards the towards the north. So they couldn't, they would take pictures of you if you did, and then you'd end up in the armistice meeting, and they'd try to say that you broke the armistice by pointing your weapons at them, doing a hostile act, act of war. And... So at night, they uh, they had uh, night vision where they'd watch you come out. And what they did is they'd count you guys and you'd patrol with them. Then they would set up, use their tactics to try to infiltrate into your patrol or watch, you know, uh, shag your patrol. Or even if they could, kill a, a U.S. member and drag them back across the border. And then say that we uh, were in North Korea and that that they that's where they killed us. That's where they killed that individual. And then that all that all goes to a big 
MAC meeting is a military armistice command meeting, and we have to basically prove that we didn't do it to the north, okay? It wasn't an act of war. In other words, we're, we'd have to go in there and apologize to them for something that we didn't do. Wow. I was just trying yeah. to figure out how they going to investigate that. What do they do, try to find uh, shell casings or what they looking at, footprints? I mean, how are they going to take yeah. somebody else's word or question what you tell them? But once, once you get in a firefight, they usually lock you into that position for seven till morning, okay? Okay? And then the whole patrol, your patrol you're in, comes under investigation for 72 hours. And they, they break everybody up so that they get a story from every individual in the patrol so that, it, if, so that the story matches, okay? In the meantime, they're out on the ambush site where you're at out there. And like you said, they're collecting shell casings and they're trying to figure out which way we would, we're aiming to shoot, okay? And if there's a body, then uh, that's a different story. You have to you have to wrap the guy with a poncho, and then put a security uh, perimeter around him. And you have to stay. You know, you strip him down and get all the important paperwork and stuff off him. But um, you, sh- you you have to pre- basically guard this guy who's dead. Till they come out the next morning, and then you're still wrong. They're going to do the 72-hour thing with you uh, and find out if the story is right. And from that from that location where he's where he's lying in the in the rice paddy or on a rice paddy dive, they can get an idea of which way you would shoot. Okay, like I said, remember they don't allow you to shoot north. That's interesting. They show dual. Whole lot of investigation because that stuff that you just shared um, with us, you know, we don't really see that on TV. Uh, you know, some of the war stories and war movies and stuff, mm-hmm. we don't get to see y'all hear about all of that. Well, how many men are uh, usually in a patrol? Uh, usually you can have 12, no less than six. Uh, the reason you can't go less than six is because the Rock Army, they go out with four men patrols, okay? And and they go out with six man patrols. Okay, so if for some reason you would drift into the rock sector, the rock army sector, the South Korean sector, and you had uh four men, okay, they would probably take you as one of their patrols or they may not. They may fire you up. They might fire fire that patrol up. So that's why we would stay at six. Now, the North Koreans always infiltrated in. They'd come out in five and then release three into the sector, the U.S. sector, and two would go back to the guard post that they came from. And what was the purpose of that? Um, The purpose of the three-man patrol, I think, you know, two of them, two of the guys of the three, was uh, actually shagging a patrol or doing trying to get a, a U.S. soldier and drag him back across the border or um, watch the patrol. But the other the, the other guy that was in there, I think he had a radio and he was watching them guys to make sure that they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. That's the final phase. For their special forces, the North Korean special forces. So we had a bunch of special forces, rock, uh, North Korean special forces, trying to infiltrate through our sector. Okay, and one of them, I'm thinking, one of them was probably a greater or watch them to see what their tactics were and how they were going about shagging a patrol or getting in, or actually getting into the patrol. Or just wa- or watching the patrol, you know, to get information, gather information on how the U.S. Uh, patrols were operated. He was there more basically just to keep a, keep an eye on them. Dragging a dragging an American across the border 
was that for uh, is that was that for like a trophy or was that in order to start some type of conflict? Well, that that's it starts some kind of conflict. It, they they would take the body and take it to the MAC meeting, okay, and put it out on display in the MAC meeting, and saying that we uh, tried to provoke war against them by by crossing the border and coming into the to the North Korean sector. Okay, in actuality, what the story would be is that they infiltrated into the the patrol, one of the patrols, God forbid, and stabbed somebody close when they were close to the MDL military demarcation line, and then just drug them back across the border. And like I said, there's nothing in the middle of it. It's just the military demarcation line. We got signs set up that says, on one side it's in Korean and English, you know that this is as far as you can go. Okay, that's what it means. And then the other side is in Chinese and North Korean. Let me give a brief announcement. For those that just joined the show and listening, if you have any questions, just press number one on your phone, and we'll be glad to let you join the conversation. And if you're at home and like to uh, join the conversation, the call-in number is 646-929-2870. Just press number one on your phone, and we'll be glad to let you join in and ask whatever questions you may have. All right. Thank you very much. Uh, Mark, um, was there an A team and a B team, and what's the difference between the two? Uh, yeah, there was an A and a B team. And that's the reason you have an A and a B team was the A team went first, and they would give fire or cover fire for the B team, which would cross over the rice paddy dikes first, okay? You never crossed both teams over a right open field or open rice paddy at the same time, okay? Because you never knew it was on the other side. There could be an ambush waiting for you on the other side. So you sent I, – what I did with my patrol is I sent the B team across first to set up security, and then when they were set in place, you know, they would flash me on their flashlight. And then I would go – at night, I'd bring my guys, the A team, across, and then we'd continue on like that. So the A team and B team is basically the same training. It's just that they designated A and B. Correct. You had the in the patrols that we ran in the DMZ. You had inside the the, the makeup of the of the patrol. You had two of each. Okay. You had a, a B team sniper and A team sniper. You had a A team RTO which a radio operator and a B team radio operator. You had an assistant patrol leader for the B team and you had the patrol leader in the A team. So it did you had a medic, we only had one medic though, so the medic was just we we had to protect that guy. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of wondering about that cuz if you if you if you lost him, what did you guys do? Cuz every man for himself uh, no, if we lost, if we got, if you got in a real bad firefight, um, uh, what I would do, if, you know, we got in a bad fire firefight, and I was taking casualty. Doc would have to be running around under fire trying to take care of these guys. But um, what you want to do is suppress the enemy. You want to suppress him as best you can so that he can. Uh, do what he has to do if somebody gets injured while, while we're in the firefight. And I'm telling you, the medic, brave man, he, well, I made mine carry an M16, uh, but most of them carried a 45. Wow. Yeah. 45 is good for about 50 meters to hit something. That's what I was thinking. Fifty minutes to hit something or hit yourself. I mean, I don't think it's going to do much damage if somebody out there is firing uh, automatic weapons, you know, machine guns and stuff. Another thing about them weapons that we had, the M16s 
uh, the battalion that I was in, you had to have the uh, trigger trigger mechanism, you know, the trigger mechanism on the in the M16. You had to have it taped down, okay. And the the ammo that you had had to have a piece of tape, uh, 100 mile hour tape, or uh, what do you call it, duct tape over the top of it. And the reason for that is they didn't want to lose any rounds inside the DMZ. So if the North Koreans, if they collect any kind of evidence that would patrol in that sector, okay, then they can bring it to the armistice meeting and say that we're, we're violating the armistice uh, uh, agreement. But they're, they're, they're violated too by patrolling and infiltrating into our side that way. So we're both in the wrong, but we're both doing it. The reason for the trigger mechanism to be taped down, they didn't want you to discharge it at all. So if you encounter the enemy and get in a fight, you have to worry about untaping the trigger before you can engage? You got it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that might, that split second might be one split second too much. Yeah, that's right. What, so what I did is I had my snipers not tape their weapons out, okay? They were M14s. I made them um, not tape uh, the, the trigger mechanism down. And I had the, myself and my APL, the assistant patrol leader, we didn't tape our weapons down, and neither did the RTOs. But everybody else I had taped down. That way we had some kind of firepower. They sure made you guys follow a whole bunch of rules, but uh, the, the, the the suspected enemy didn't have to go by them same rules. No, no. We had to tape the equipment that we carried into the DMZ had to all be taped down and tied down. Your canteen, your ammo pouches, uh, your compasses, your flashlights, whatever you had on that equipment, on your load-bearing equipment, the the harness that you wore had to be all taped down and tied down. And that's for noise. They said it was for noise suppression to, so that, you know, which makes sense to me, okay? But like you said, you get in a firefight, it, it come, becomes a pain in the butt. <laughs> I can imagine so. <laughs> or a bullet in the butt. <laughs> what? I you know, and, and you try to – they. They ask for a, they don't ask for a feedback from the patrols. They just kind of what I thought was they were just kind of you know, CYA in their ass, okay, covering their ass with, with just trying to come up with stuff that there's you know guys sitting behind the desk saying, well, what else do we need to do? What else do we need to do? What else? Do we need? You know what I'm saying? Who hadn't actually been out on patrol? But isn't that the way it always is? I mean, we're dealing with the same thing now with the government. The people making decisions for how we live are not actually living that way. So isn't mm-hmm. it the same? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we didn't we didn't have officers with us. Um, I really believe, and to this day, we didn't care. We didn't. They didn't send officers out into the DMZ because it would have been too much red tape. Um. To say, you know, if he got shot and died or if he lost a leg or something, to explain to the parents uh, why that happened, you know. And they couldn't just say it was a training mission. Where the leadership inside the patrols usually was an E6 or an E5, and you had a spec four as the alternate patrol leader and uh, or an E5 if you were lucky. Hey, play, play, play like we don't know what that is because we don't. Okay, well, in the rank structure, uh, an E6 is a, a just a staff sergeant, okay? Okay, okay he's one step higher than an E5, uh, just a regular sergeant, okay? And then a specialist or respect four was a specialist. He, he, that's just the right name, specialist. It's four, okay? And uh, those were the makeup or the leadership inside the patrol because 
E sevens the the staffs are are the uh, E seven. I want to say I can't think of a name now. I've been out so long. <laughs> uh, but the E sevens they didn't do patrols. Uh, the the E eights the they didn't do patrols. All, all the upper rank, all the upper enlisted did not patrol the DMZ, okay, unless they I, wanted I, to. I always wanted to know, how is that determined? How is those ranks determined by a, a test? I mean, how are those ranks determined? Well, you get promoted by uh, your time and service, and then you have to go before the board, uh, which is a panel of, uh, of uh, enlisted soldiers, okay? You have to go before a board, and like for E6, it goes up to uh, it goes. You, you take a picture and you go before the board. It goes before the board in D.C. or somewhere, Arlington or somewhere. That goes before the board and they uh, they decide if you become an E6 or. And this is when I was in, okay, and same with the E7s and the E8s, which was the, was your uh, those would have been your. E7s would have been like your platoon sergeant. E8 would have been the uh, first sergeant, and, and that's the change. So, how the change so what makes you what what qualifies you for that? I mean, just the time you've been in, in service, or uh, a certain uh, training, or at that, time, at that time, at that time, it was time and service. Yeah. Okay, so if I spend uh, more time in service, I could have a higher rank than you. Yeah. Yep. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm more it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm more qualified than you. It just means that I've been in there longer than you. Correct. Yeah. Oh wow. You that means you could have a dummy that's been in there a long time and then uh not very knowledgeable and could create some harm because, you know, He's been in there a while. You know, you know, a lot of times, you know how people are. Just because they got more time in, they feel like they can call shots, but don't necessarily mean that they're qualified to do that. Yeah. If we had a first sergeant once, once time, I was in. We had a first sergeant. Okay, he's the he's the top dog in the NCO uh, list. Okay, uh, as roster ranks. Okay, he was a rifted major. Okay. In other words, he got kicked out, and they broke him down to an E8. He would, but he he worked at a ROTC school or something like that. It was ROTC or something, and he was working, and he got rifted out. He did something wrong, and instead of kicking him out totally, they made him an E8. Okay, and this guy didn't know nothing. Okay, all he knew was books. That's all I I gathered from my books and how to walk around and complain about everything you did. <laughs> yeah, no. he was telling me, and the officers weren't no better. You get your officers there. You got some officers that had some experience and were willing to listen to the NCO, but a lot of them from West Point. They were from West Point. And they were book smart, but they weren't hands-on smart. Okay, in other words, they believed in the book that they got from West Point and the the books that they read and went to schooling that they got in West Point, but they actually didn't do any hands-on training. I mean, actually hands-on. I mean, they may have did it at West Point in a controlled environment, but you put them in the DMZ and all hell breaks loose. That's not a controlled environment. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> that's when you find out where the heart is. Yeah. That's why I think also they didn't send – we didn't have, like I said, officers didn't do patrols with us, and neither did the senior NCOs. We didn't have reporters embedded with us. We didn't have none of that good stuff. Uh, it was just, just uh, us and what, what – what happened out? What we, what we used to say is, what happened inside the DMZ is going to stay inside the DMZ because you take it back to the to the intelligence officer and he takes a report from you, and it might end up in file thirteen in the can. 
the garbage cans. So tell me, tell well, not me, but tell us the difference between a, a non-commissioned officer and a commissioned officer. Non-commissioned officer is an NCO. He gets his commission is is through the ranks. Okay, you come up through the ranks, and the the company commander promotes him. Okay, an officer, a commissioned officer. Is commissioned through going through either West Point or you're in combat or something, and they give you a field commission commission to be an officer. Okay, they uh they get their commission once they finish the school and stuff. Well, like at West Point, you just can't you just can't go in like an NCO. I take that back. An NCO can become an officer, but he has to go through the same kind of schooling uh, that those officers went through. And once that happens, he can become an officer. Okay? But the difference is a non-commissioned officer is an NCO is, is, is you're, you're more like the, the trainer. You work with the, your guys all the time. You're always around them. In, in, in layman's term, uh, like a supervisor and the officer is like the manager. Okay. Seemed like the non-commissioned officer got more uh, uh, hands-on experience than the commission officer. That's correct. Usually what happens when, when an officer comes to a new unit, like in Korea, we get new officers every year because it's a one-year tour. And, you know, they've never been in Korea before. Some of them. So... It was. It's up to the non-commissioned officer to kind of train him and guide him and show him, you know, what the do's and don'ts are in South Korea. Okay, if he listens to you, and nine times out of ten they won't listen to you. Yeah, but everything I see, how, they, I see how their ego would be an issue yeah. if they come out yeah. of school thinking they better. And it's funny because. We would get uh we would be doing something, some kind of training during the day and you would think the manager, the the officer would come around and see what's going on, right? Never when I was there every depending on what officer I was under, but mo- most of the time they, they were never around. They were always doing some kind of schooling or something. Okay? And so they were never around. So it was, it was the supervisor, the NCO, that was making sure the job was getting done and done the right way and how to do it. And we would show guys how you show everybody how to do it and what to do, and you know, you go from there. In other words, the the NCO guy, the NCO is the guy that got his hands dirty, and the officers you know, can get didn't get his hands dirty. <laughs> You definitely gave me something. So now when I watch some of these war movies and stuff, I have a better uh, understanding of how the, the players play because I can see the commission officers coming out of West Point. They're coming out with an ego and this book knowledge, but they have no hands-on experience. And then I can see that the, the, the non-commissioned officer had done a bunch of tours and patrols and stuff and seen people die all over the place. So mm-hmm. he has a whole different level of experience. Then here come this young whippersnapper snapper, trying to tell him what to do, and they don't really have a clue. But then because of their their commission, he has to kind of listen to them to a certain extent. So I can see that would be an issue right there big time. Yeah, that's, that's so true. And me, I spent 10 years in South Korea, okay? And I had uh, – a lot of patrols up on the DMZ. I, 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 too many to to explain, okay? And every time we went up on that mission, they would always try to do it this way, that way, this way. And I'm like, I, I would always bump heads with them. I said, that's not going to work. This is the way it's done. This is the way it's supposed to be done. And they're like, well, I'm going to change it right here. You're going to change the, the DMZ regulation right here. You're going to change it. Uh, Butter Bar Lieutenant. Well, who gives you the authority to, to do that? And he's like, well, Congress gives me the authority to change that. And I'm like, no, that doesn't work that way. 
That made you his favorite person, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I ended up uh, on a lot of favorite persons. List. <laughs> but I didn't mind because, you know, it, it was I, – I was basically – also, my guys, when my men were around me, they were seeing that somebody was sticking up for them, you know, that we just weren't rolling over and letting them get away or do whatever they want to do with them. So, so when you were out on patrol, um, Mark, who, who who was who was in charge? Who was the leader? I was. I was the patrol leader. And and your rank was E five, promotable to E six. Okay. Was there was there a second person? Yeah. Um, uh, my uh, second person was an E5, and he was promotable to E6. Uh, his name is uh, Alan Hines. Uh, he's in he lives in Virginia. We keep in contact. Uh, did he see a lot of action as well? Uh, when we did patrols, we didn't. When I was with him, when we did our patrols up there. We didn't see so much action that time, but we saw a lot of infiltration attempts. Uh, a lot of where they were trying to just hassle us, you know, kind of scare us and stuff like that. There was one time, one incident where one tried to jump into my patrol. We were right on the MDL, and he walked right up on one of my guys, and my guards pointed his it. M16 at him was getting ready to shoot him, and the guy ran on took off. Him. So when they so when they do that, I mean, do they have on uh, the same type of uh, clothing, attire, I mean, gear that you have on when they try to infiltrate, or they got their stuff on? I can't see them just walking up with their uniforms on trying to do that, or yeah. do they? They 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 when they walk when they're infiltrating, uh, it depends what the weather is. If the moon's out real bright. Then they're gonna they're gonna wear the same kind of garb or same kind of clothes that we have, okay? Same kind of uniform, okay? So they can get close and get try to get in the, in the patrol. But if there's no moon and it's pitch black, then they wear black, okay? They wear black uniforms. So what's the distance the distance between man to man in the patrol? Arm arm length. That's at night. During the day, it's like uh, five to ten meters. It could be more than that. Yeah, I was just wondering. Ball- it seemed like they'd have to. They would have to be kind of ballsy to try to, uh, you know, just walk up in there and play like he's one of y'all. You know. Well, well, what it is is, what, remember I told you that when we came to a rice paddy dike, B team would go across, and then Alpha team would go across. Okay. What it is is they lie in the dikes or they lie on the other side. And while they're busy setting up security, you know, they kind of scramble into the security, into the into the formation. Or they'll, they'll lie in the dikes, and as you're walking, the last guy across is supposed to be pulling the rear security, keeping an eye on the rear. He'll get in, he'll get in between you and uh, try to walk that way. They, we always, Every time I did a a rice paddy dike crossing, I always got a head count, okay, where you just count heads, how many people are in here. You should have 12 people, that's what you should have. Now, there was one time I crossed the dike, and I had the radar site give me it, because I just had, you know, you have that gut feeling in your gut. I just had a gut feeling, and I I asked them to pull a head count for me, how many people are you seeing my pool? And they go, well, you got 14, and I'm like, Fourteen. I only got twelve. <laughs> and they go, well, there's two stragglers behind you, okay? So we set up on the ambush site on the other side real fast of that bike and uh, waited for these guys to come. And they never came across because they they knew I, they knew I would have shot them. I would have shot them. <laughs> how how, so how, how big a danger was a uh, 
How big of danger was uh, landmines, you know, because we see a lot of that on TV. I mean, is that a concern for you guys when you're doing that, walking across any open spaces? Well, they had, yeah, they had all the minefields marked. And they, they had them marked and they didn't have them marked, okay? Uh, but for the most part, we never, I've never, in all the 385 patrols that I've done, I've never had a problem with running into mines in the, in the patrol routes, so. Yes, that was a blessing. Yeah, you always hear you always hear about mines or uh, some uh, vehicle running over a landmine. Well, what? Yeah, those were like back in the day before I got there. The North Koreans they had dox mines and two six of TNT in there and stuff, and they're pressure pressure mines. And they go out there and dig a hole or something and put it in your patrol watch so somebody would step on it and then lift your foot and boom, it goes off. They call them box mines. Um, but they didn't, I never seen, I ran across, I mean, I ran in, I ran across some of those, okay, but I haven't, I didn't ever run across like a tank mine or a, a vehicle mine or something like that. Nah. Although we had we had the truck sandbag down for mine, so. Wow. Seemed like those tanks uh, uh, would be fun to drive. You know, I, I spent a little time down at Fort Bliss. Um, oh, yeah? The, uh, I was a physical instructor for one period. And uh, oh, okay. I, used to lot, I used to see a lot of those big tanks and uh, all the gear that uh, was at their disposal. The only thing I didn't understand is why they had all these other countries used to come to Fort Bliss for training. And I'm like, mm-hmm. why you let these countries in your house? And then you always talked about espionage and spies and stuff. If I don't want mm-hmm. you to know what I had going on in my house, I don't think I'd invite you in my house. I never did understand that about You see all these other different countries down at Fort Bliss training on uh, U.S. equipment and artillery mm-hmm. and uh, different devices. I never did understand that. It's a- I don't fully understand it, but I, it's diplomatic. That's all I can say. <laughs> That's something that they do. They let them people, even these people we go to war with, have been to our schools and learned how to, uh, our war schools and stuff, and learned how to fight wars and stuff. You know, And then we, we end up going to war with them. I mean. With our equipment. We fight their own stuff with our equipment. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's like you said too. I mean, we we've given equipment to some of these rogue states out there that have our equipment, and they've had they've got our war training behind them, and then they want to go to war with us. Not only makes absolutely no sense to me. Did you take yeah. a Did you take a report? Did you guys have a reporter out with you? No, we never had no report reporters with us at all. The only reporter we had was a pen and a piece of paper, a notepad. That I'm telling you, the government. This truthfully, this is the truth. Uncle Sam had his own private war going on when I was there inside the demilitarized zone of South Korea. There was there was. I mean, they had that so bottled up, man. You 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 couldn't get a leak out of it at all. Yeah, well, unfortunately, the government continues to have their own war going on. They just tell us about it after the fact. Yeah. Yep. After the fact. Well, uh, Mark, we got a few minutes uh, left on the show, but I want you to talk a little bit about. Your book called Sign Purple Three and uh, Defcon Four. Well, those two books are about uh, patrolling the U.S. sector of the DMZ, uh, the South Korean DMZ. It's a the Call Sign Purple Three is an actual memoir of one of one of the patrols that I pulled. Okay, just just one. And then Defcon Four is kind of like a it's a story, but it's 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 got actual events in it that happened. But I have 
make it a fiction book because they didn't want Uncle Sam knocking on their door saying, why are you writing all this stuff up? They told me 25 years and I could write it and it was going to be clear, so I didn't think it would happen, but I, I didn't want to take any chances. But those books, DEFCON 4 is just a little book. It's, it's only made 67 pages long, but it's action-packed, okay? Um, Call Sign Purple 3 is like uh, 200 and some pages long, and it uh, it breaks down how we prepped, how we rehearsed, inspections, and doing actually doing the patrol, the day recons, the night ambushes, the guard posts, and warrior base where we stayed at. And it, it, it breaks down everything. Okay, well, let everybody know where they can go get a copy. All oh, those books are available everywhere on the net. Uh, you can walk in any bookstore and request it, and it's print on demand. I mean, they're 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 available everywhere. And I have also for the military folks, they're available in 144 military uh, PXs and BXs across the uh, around the world. Well, that's fantastic, and everybody out there, let everybody know. Um, where you heard this show with Mr. Mark Heathcote, and hopefully he was able to answer some questions and give you some insight on really what uh, took place there. And I know I definitely learned some things. Mm-hmm. Mark, we definitely going to appreciate you, man, and and uh, wish you the best out there, man, and continue telling uh, our story. And I hope we don't end up back in a, uh, uh, another world war no time soon. So unfortunately, it seems like this country only prospers when they're fighting somebody. Yeah. Well, I appreciate being on the show, and I appreciate passing the information, and hopefully people uh, learn something from it, not, not just thinking we just pulled guard duty up on the DMZ. That, uh, that's the only thing that ticks me off is a lot of people I run into, oh, you only pulled guard duty up there. <laughs> I don't get in a fight with them or argue with them. I just walk away. Well, you know, people that don't know, don't know. Unfortunately, uh, that's a crime in this uh, country in which we live. You know, people actually think they know more than what they do, but you ask them a question, when was they there? Um, When were you there? You know what I mean? And and then their mouth drop open because they have nothing to say. Yeah, yeah. Mark, we'll just continue to wish you the best, man, and you you be safe out there and – Continue to pass your message, man. Again, we appreciate you spending time with us, man. It was great. All right. I had a great time with you guys. Uh, God bless, and uh, um, keep reaching for the stars, man. <laughs> will do. Will do. And uh, for those of you to join us late, this show will be available worldwide in about two minutes, so you have no excuse not to hear the show. And if you have any problems, ask your mama, ask your daddy, ask your neighbor across the street. And if he don't know, ask the man at the gas station, the supermarket, somebody will be able to tell you where you can hear this show. So it's available everywhere. Like I said, we'll see you guys next you guys next week and uh put you on this on the way out of the dock. Alone in love, going strong, tick off. I take the car to beat the bar, so I thought yet my life was tossed to and fro up on the seat of pain. Again, I strained, could not refrain the theory when I couldn't make it, couldn't take it, didn't wanna fake it. I had to break it, I was stuck, it couldn't shake it. I tried to keep it on the wonder for the life of me. All I got was trouble, trouble, hurt and misery. One day I heard him say, confession sit there down and break, and he will come with no delay. If he will call, I said, okay. I I had no idea.
in the mirror and didn't know me. But God bless, oh, my soul. I let go. He took control. Now forever and ever together. He promised never to forsake me, hate me, or play me. There's nothing better than being in the presence of the one and only. Satan in his proper place and left below me. Lovingly unto thee, I bow down ever humbly to the one who gave me life abundantly. Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer a hand clapper a high fiver I kind of like the high five but if you want to hone in on those winning moves check out Chumba Casino at ChumbaCasino.com choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes there are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses so don't wait start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com no purchase necessary BDW void prohibited by law see terms and conditions 18 plus